From the Canon Institute, this is The Russia File. I am Maxim Trudalyubov. We are going to discuss media and politics. The first subject at hand is, of course, the U.S. media during the U.S. presidential election that is still ongoing as we are recording this. But we will, of course, move on to Russian subjects, to Russian media and Russia's role in the U.S. media discourse in due course later on while we discuss things. Joining me for this conversation, Sarah Oates, professor and senior scholar at uh, Philip Merrill College of Journalism at the University of Maryland, and Maria Snigavaya, and uh, she is a postdoctoral fellow at the Kellogg Center for Philosophy, Politics and Economics at Virginia Tech. So it's distinguished panel, and uh, I'm sure we'll have a very interesting discussion this time at the Russia File, the Canon Institute's podcast. So we will try and start with uh, what's going on in the U.S. right now during the election, how media behave itself, what was its role during the election. And it's actually fascinating for someone like myself, who is originally a journalist. We were starting a newspaper, it was called Vedomosti 20 years ago, and we looked up at the likes of the Wall Street Journal and uh, the New York Times, and we learned from those media outlets a lot. Now, when I look at what media is doing during the election, I sometimes have questions. Sometimes it seems to me that the U.S. media have become really, really polarized and really politicized, and uh, some of them, let's say, some of the night shows which I liked to watch, I basically stopped watching because they've become so politicized. So the question is, Sarah Oates, what do you think? What what would be your take at U.S. media role and how did it or did it change during the past years? I would say the media certainly have changed over the past several years, but I don't think it's really a question of certain mainstream media just becoming biased in some way. I think there's been a real struggle in the media sphere in general between traditional media outlets who have tried their best in trying situations to stick to journalistic norms and have been really, really challenged. And then you have more right-wing media that have abandoned traditional media norms and where ideological goals have become more important than journalistic ethics. It's really going to depend on whether you sit on the left and right. And if you sit on the right, you look at the mainstream media and say, well, there are so liberal. Really, they're libertarian in the sense that they are trying to give you a smorgasbord of information. On the left, people are saying that, oh, well, you know, if you look at outlets like Breitbart and um, Infowars and even Fox News, they're saying that seems heavily ideological to me. So as a content analysis specialist, I think it's really important to drill down and look at who's saying what and who's giving both sides or trying to give both sides and who really isn't. And in my view, you know, the media on the right don't try as hard to give both sides of the picture. So basically, there is a difference between the right and the left in the way they are biased. The different kinds of bias, right? I'm going to push back a little bit there. And I don't think it's fair to compare, say, Infowars and Breitbart with The New York Times. I think The New York Times is really struggling. And The Washington Post and the mainstream media are really struggling with this conundrum of which Russia went through in the early 1990s, which is at what point do you drop the pretense and try to defend democracy? And at what point do you say that, well, you know, we need to keep filming this presidential press conference because it's news and the citizens should see it. So what's your role? And right now, a lot of the mainstream media feel that their role is to be guardians of democracy. And other people look at that and say, well, no, that's not really your role. Your role is to 
cover everything and try to give us every point of view. But right now, since there's no shared reality in the United States, basically what journalists are being asked to do is impossible. And layered on top of that this week is a real concern. If you give the oxygen of publicity to the idea that people should go out in the streets and challenge democracy, that's also not really being a guardian of democracy. So let's just say I'm really glad I'm a media scholar right now and not a journalist, because these are some very, very hard decisions to walk the line between informing the citizens and feeding the fires of disinformation. Marius Nikolai, let's look at this. Let's start probably with you as a scholar from Russia, living in the U.S. for a long time. What do you see when you look at the U.S. media, just as a Russian person with the kind of background we share from Russia? Given that our political system back in Russia is very far from ideal and standard, I try to shy away from criticizing democratic systems, since I don't really have a good comparative point. However, clearly in recent years, the polarization ongoing uh, in the U.S. society uh, that became also very pronounced uh, in the U.S. media is really, really hard to ignore. And personally, I find it increasingly more difficult to honestly find facts, uh, since I have to double-check all the time any information I receive from what used to be established media on both right and left. I disagree that it's primarily the issue on the right. I think both sides are actually quite implicated in the same problem. I'm going to push you on that a little bit. Okay, let's get to it later on. Yeah, I really find myself in this very interesting place where the early hopes on uh, late 1990s in early 2000s, we, when internet was seen as this magical tool which would uh, resolve all of our problems, make access to the information costless, and uh, limit the ability of the bad guys, autocrats, manipulate public perceptions of reality, that this tool will finally provide the way towards the ideal of liberal democracy for all of the societies in the world. And instead, as a result, we actually find ourselves in a very different place where Internet is making us more polarized and it becomes increasingly difficult to find common ground, even with people, with the ones who are essentially we, we should be sharing very similar views because of our, for example, common background. That is not the case. As a matter of fact, the Internet becomes very polarizing. And um, I would like, as part of this conversation, if you don't mind, to different ways this polarization shows itself in the US as opposed to Russia. Because I would argue in Russia, we also see this polarization driven by the internet. Ironically, in Russia, it's not necessarily a bad thing. So it sort of depends on the context. Sarah, you wanted to intervene. I think it's interesting, and I, and I try really, really hard to check my own bias, but I would just sort of challenge people to say, when we talk about issues and problems in mainstream media, I think they differ a lot. For example, Fox News was pushing that Corona wasn't serious, that it was all hype, and they didn't change their tune until much later than the rest of the mainstream media. So I think there's objective evidence that Fox definitely paralleled Trump's agenda, that Fox at many times was definitely tailoring its message to what the Trump supporters wanted to hear. Now, in a way, that's okay, that's fine, that tends to be their constituency. And that is a particular media product. And you're free to pick another one. The problem is, I think, some false equivalencies between what I see in some of the right wing media that verges on disinformation versus what I would see as liberal bias at times or a particular type of narrative on the left. I don't think they're the same thing. And I disagree with Maria in that I think that I can read The Washington Post and I think I can get two sides of a story. I may want to go further and read more, but I feel like I've been given the basic facts 
when I consume media from those particular outlets. And I wouldn't feel that confident in others. So basically what you're saying is that there is, if you look from the left, I mean, the left is actually very uncomfortable for a Russian to use this. So I would... You can say Biden supporters, that might <laughs> yeah, be easier. Yeah, right. <laughs> Biden supporters, people who vote liberals, and they're kind of left-wing liberals. Anyway, I remember reading Thomas Carotta's account of uh, polarized politics, polarized nations. And uh, one of the descriptives he's using is that when there's a real, real polarization, a common ground, not just common ground, but common reality disappears. So basically, you're saying that when you read things like the New York Times, Washington Post, quality press, so quality media, there is still such a thing as quality media. They attempt, they're trying to preserve or make an attempt at painting a common reality, whereas the right wing or ultra-conservative media do not. Yeah, you just actually put it a really good way because it's very difficult for me to have the perspective. I did want to say one way I really agree with Maria on the interpretation of what the internet, particularly social media, has wrought. I agree that it has become the anti-social media, to quote that great book by Siva Vidayanathan. It didn't deliver the promise at all. I think in some ways Americans are at that point that perhaps Russians were in the 1990s where, oh, we were promised that democracy would make things better, and it really hasn't. And now we were promised that social media and the internet would do all these great things, and it's really fragmented and fractured us. I think the media have demonstrated in the last 24 hours, and I include Fox News in this because I've been a little critical, but I, I do think their election coverage was quite strong. The media have demonstrated why they matter. I think it'd be interesting to talk a, a little bit about that. Okay, let's actually talk a little bit about that because my perspective is actually very limited. I'm looking from Russia or from Europe at the US election, mainly through things like Wall Street Journal or New York Times, and uh, I see the difference. Ironically, recently I see that New York Times is trying to be very cautious. They're giving Biden sort of less credit and they're being more cautious than the Wall Street Journal. So if you look at the front page, you'll see that Biden is doing better on the Wall Street Journal page than on the New York Times page, which is interesting in itself. So what do you think, what both Maria, let's probably go to you first. What is your impression, just as a person who's reading all this, of the very recent coverage during those very intense days of the vote counting in the US? I'm definitely much more experienced with Russian media than I am with the topic of the US media. But I hope that perhaps as we see some moderation on the side of the Fox News and uh, as uh, Sarah mentioned also on uh, the side of the New York Times, for example, perhaps it's a good sign. Perhaps it's a sign that uh, Trump, which was really a very polarizing force in the US politics, his disappearance, or not disappearance, at least him leaving the presidential post in the United States will at least somewhat will allow to opposing comes to find uh, some common ground. I will mention one thing that came out yesterday, right, when Trump's speech was cut off in the middle of his talk. I wonder what Sarah's position is on this matter. And I've seen a lot of debate about this issue in among the Russians. Some, of course, uh, welcome this move as uh, essentially cutting off for uh, any so much essentially brings us broader towards debate that exists today in the US politics about what disinformation is. And the argument on cutting off his speech would go along the following lines. This is information. We need to protect our audiences from being exposed to this hostile and uh, essentially fake information. And hence, uh, we need to protect them. But there's an opposite argument, which I saw several prominent Russian journalists to endorse, that let's respect our audiences and provide them the existing 
information as it is. And then if we disagree with it, then we can essentially frame it the following way. For example, can provide some comments on uh, what Trump said and prove how he was wrong. And um, I think it's uh, ultimately a lot of it is definitional debate as my essentially Sarah's disagreement with me, I think to a large extent is definitional, is how far do we expand the issue of the concept of disinformation, right? What is disinformation? And is an opinion expressed uh, by an active politician, very pledged politician, to what extent anything he says may be qualified as disinformation and what is our discretion and therefore censoring this disinformation. I think this becomes a very, very big issue, the US public discourse. That's a great point, Maria. Thank you really for bringing this up. Sarah, please, what's your take on that? I think this is so fascinating. And it did strike me that perhaps they should just put Swan Lake on and have done with it as they used to do in, in critical times on Soviet TV. But in listening to Maria, it helped me figure something out, which is what was this moment of these three national broadcasters choosing not to broadcast the president's speech? It was a moment of saying that this is disinformation. This is dangerous. This is standing up and yelling fire in a crowded theater, which is the famous definition of when speech becomes danger in the United States. So I think quite spontaneously, I don't think there was any discussion, although there may have been, we don't know. These three major networks decided that he was yelling fire in a crowded theater, that he was inciting people to attack democratic institutions. And as such, he lost the right to a platform. So is that censorship? Or is that the media performing a function to preserve and protect democracy? And I think this is one media scholars will be debating for a long, long time, even though I imagined, because I know the journalism world quite well here as I used to be one, I think it just happened in the moment. But what lies beneath? And the problem with it is, and this is a point both of you have brought up, is that any kind of conciliatory moves or attempts to for the New York Times to try to say, look, you know, we're really trying to be fair, we're going to be overly cautious. For the Wall Street Journal to be a little bit more, okay, we'll go ahead and say he got that state. For Fox News to call Arizona for Biden before anybody else. I think you see media outlets trying their hardest, well, cynically, to attract the largest audiences, or less cynically, to demonstrate their commitment to journalistic ethics. And the moment of switching off the president is a tough one. The easier move would have been just to let it roll and do what they always do with the president and say, okay, let's have some correction here. Let's have some fact checking. But I think in the moment, they wanted to make a statement for democracy. And I think that's what they did. Can I just quickly talk on the question of censorship? It's a definitional question. It is censorship by definition. Censorship is suppression of prohibition of any parts of book, films, news that are considered obscene, politically unacceptable, or a threat to security. So regardless of how we view it, positive or negative light, it's still a censorship. That's one question. And second, it's not a new development, right? We increasingly see a similar policy on the side of the social media, like Twitter and Facebook, especially Twitter. Twitter has been increasingly also, for example, blocking some of the tweets that Trump has said. So it's not entirely new. That's why I think it's very, very important that this becomes an issue of uh, public discussion. Perhaps it's necessary. And of course, any established media, any mainstream media, and Maxim and I, who both worked at Better Mysterio, will assure, they will imply some, definitely moderate, definitely correct and censor some of the elements of what can and cannot appear on the pages of the public media. So it always is present. The, what is in any media operation. The question is to what extent it is acceptable to do to, towards the um, speech of this public importance. 
Let's, let's put it this way. I'll just jump in very, very quickly, just before I forget. It's just that I remember that we had discussions about that at Vedemisty back at the times when, during the times when Vedemisty was still an independent media outlet. And um, I remember that uh, the editor-in-chief would uh, jump at us whenever we say something like, are you trying to prevent us from publishing this or that? Especially me, as I used to be an opinion page editor. So I was responsible for publishing things that sometimes would go into conflict with things that the rest of the editorial people would think, but I wanted to publish that anyway. So we had all those discussions and uh, they would say, don't publish. And I would say, no, no, this is censorship. And they would tell me, this is not censorship. This is editorial policy, okay? That's a, a little tiny memoir. Back to you, Sarah. It's an important memoir. It really is an important memoir to think about that because coming from a situation in which censorship was and then again became endemic, perhaps more now self-censorship, it's complicated in Russia. But I think there's lots and lots of things the media don't cover. The media don't allow convicted murderers to get on air and talk about why they really didn't do it. You know, we don't let Larry Nasser, the convicted serial sexual assault person with the women's Olympic team, a gymnastics team, he doesn't get to talk show about his side of things. There's certain limits that we don't really go past. And I think they wanted to see it. It was lots of other places, including probably directly broadcast somewhere online. So it wasn't complete censorship. And the other point is that if you view your role as the guardian of democracy, which I think you should as a journalist, and I think that that's your first orientation, then I don't think it's just simply censorship or non-censorship. I think it's a question of signaling and protecting democracy. And I think there are times when there's just things you don't put on air. Interestingly, in America, you will very rarely see film of the Twin Towers being hit on 9-11. We don't put it on air much. And they didn't publish the photos of the people jumping from the buildings. There's moments when as a society you go, I'm not a mirror here. I have a professional job to do, and that is to protect the boundaries of this society. This is a very important conversation, I think. And uh, given that the Russian media have been inevitably learning from the U.S. media simply because the U.S. media tradition is longer. And when we were starting independent media back in the 90s, as myself, for example, we started Vedemisty in the very, very late, late 90s, basically. It was 99. And um, by that time, we had those long traditions in the West at which we looked. But now we see all those new developments. And let's go to Russia, actually, to what we can learn on how we uh, see our media situation right now. In Russia, what do you think is, where are we now with the Russian media in the sense of being free? And do we actually have to learn anything or we're so far uh, underwater? Thank you for that question, Maxim. Since I study anti-establishment politics, primarily in Central and Eastern Europe and Russia, to some extent, if you can think of it anti-establishment politics existing in Russia, I see quite interesting parallels in what internet primarily does to Russian society as opposed to the American society. In my opinion, internet and uh, the polarization it creates that we have discussed before actually fosters increases number of people who are unhappy with traditional establishment politics. The difference is that in Russia, this traditional establishment politics, unfortunately, is autocratic, unfortunately for Russians. But in the United 
United States, it's a democracy, right? It's two-party system and it's institutions. So what we see in Russia, that uh, in the recent years, internet has increasingly started overtaking mainstream Kremlin-controlled TV channels as the main information source for Russians, especially in the younger groups. They divide parses about people who are 55 plus years old and those who are below that essential threshold, they tend to rely on internet increasingly as their primary information source. And uh, as a result, these people become much more oppositionary-minded and much more opposed to the Kremlin and Putin politics. Primarily, of course, because they are exposed to alternative viewpoints and uh, actually tend to find that the reality that are presented by the Kremlin channels, TV channels, really is not very similar to what they see around them in their daily lives. As a result, and we have just published a report about that uh, with Levada Center and Center for European Policy Analysis, the society in Russia actually increasingly becomes divided into two camps in a way that is quite similar, echoing the US uh, situation, where you see one traditionalist camp, Putin supporters, older age groups with their own pretty much old pop stars, singers, etc., etc., and a new emerging camp, primarily united younger Russians, where you see they're quite opposition-minded, unhappy with Putin and uh, the way things are in Russia and they own all their own type of uh, preferred broadcasters, preferred uh, influencers and activists and journalists who they follow. And of course, increasingly, these two camps uh, find it very difficult to essentially find any common ground between each other. In some ways, in some ways, I would argue uh, the dynamic in the US, of course, very, very similar on so many levels. But we do see is definitely also fostered by uh, the spread of social media and internet, dividing the society into two camps, and especially, especially the right wing camp becoming increasingly unhappy and frustrated with the mainstream politics. Well, that's very interesting. Thank you, Maria. Sarah, what do you think? Have you looked at any parallels between these two universes? Uh, what do you think? Well, I'm always thinking about parallels between Russia and everything else, because that is my particular obsession, I guess. So I think that it's very, very interesting because I think Putin is a much more effective leader than Trump. I think Putin in particular, he is very meticulous and careful with his communication plans, his speeches. It may not appeal to everybody, but it makes sense, right? Trump is just all over the place. I mean, you just don't know what he's going to say next. He, according to trackers, you know, he became less and less grounded in reality as time went on. And this is what, whereas I can certainly understand people being frustrated with the status quo in the United States, very little of what Trump has suggested is grounded in facts. I mean, immigrants are not taking your jobs. The Republicans do not have a health care plan. The only way you're going to get health care if you're in a certain group is from Obamacare. You know, it's this really bizarre disconnect between reality and what they perceive to be reality. So I know tons of people who actually have conservative values, but they don't support Trump because they just don't see any rationality to it. So it's a very confusing time for us. And in this way, we are like more like the Russians of the 1990s than the Russians of today, I think. Two more points. One is there is no real viable opposition yet in Russia. I'm not that's not to say it's not going to develop and there's some very interesting points, I guess, certainly within the Navalny and, and his particular camp, you know, the, the Communist Party is still there, but it's not like us. We're basically split in half, right? And the other point about comparisons between Russia and the United States lies in the world of journalism. There are people doing courageous acts of journalism in Russia. And that is the most inspiring thing to me, that despite everything, despite 
terrible paying conditions despite publications being shut down, despite you know a looming threat of violence. You just can't get rid of journalists and journalism. And I think that that's, to me, a great tribute to Russians who persevere, but also an inspiration to Americans in like, hey, guys, you think you have it hard? You really don't. So keep going. Thank you for mentioning that. I think that's true, that we do have in Russia a number of projects, and actually quite a few of them. Most of them are small. And uh, I remember Natalia Rostova, who's studying media in Russia, calling them mini-media in the sense that those are like really small projects. Some of them run by teams of three to five to ten people. And they are doing the kind of job that's disproportionately more important than their size and even their audience, because the audience sometimes tends to multiply in case they produce something really, really interesting. I just also wanted to mention very briefly Belarus, because I've been reading a very interesting study recently that uh, shows that Belarus is an increasingly advanced nation in the sense of their media diet and the way they understand and consume media. It's actually very interesting. It's a study by something called Sociolytics. It's a firm in, in Britain. It's a UK analytical company. And they, they produced a study together with the King's College uh, Russia Institute. And they looked at Belarus. And one important takeaway is that Belarusians essentially went, uh, stopped watching TV in droves. And that happened mostly during COVID. And the figures is almost mirror Russia in the sense that in Russia, there is still a huge share of people who watch state-run television. And in Belarus, they said, just stop doing that. So it's less than 40% of Belarusians who still watch it. So it's more than half who just stopped doing that. And it's an incredible development, I think. Basically, it's happened because of the lack of trust during COVID and then during the election, and again, trust issues with the electoral results, that they completely switched essentially to all those new media, to small media, to Telegram channels. Telegram is a popular messenger in Russia and uh, in Russian-speaking countries. So that's an interesting development. And um, this is, by the way, Mary, is a kind of, Belarus is a hopeful in the sense that social media and internet is still at a stage where it's producing some hopeful results there. I don't know where it's going next. Absolutely. And uh, I think actually Belarus, if anything, is a very good positive example that Russia is likely to follow. As I mentioned before, we do observe the very similar trend in, maybe not to such a scale, of course, but still a similar trend of decline in trust uh, in uh, TV channels. In uh, the last 10 years, a quarter of Russian decreased their trust in Russian state TV channels. We see this trend continuing as uh, they're increasingly trusting and uh, tuning into internet and social media. That is good trend and uh, the difference is that the Kremlin is, or the Putin's more specifically, is not as disliked as uh, Lukashenko is in Belarus. So Russians are still trusting to Putin overall and the economic situation is not as bad. So therefore, there's just not as many preconditions for Russians to decrease their trust um, in established media entirely. I think that's a great point. And I also think it's great that we pulled back a little from the brink about negativity about the internet. And it does allow things like independent media media, for example, to flourish in places. It's just sort of lately in the United States, I think it's in particular, it's just become overwhelming. I did want to end with a story. Sure, because you please had, do. You, you yes. had asked me about what next for America. 
And I think that it reminds me of when I wrote my dissertation about the 1995 Russian Duma elections. And you'll remember that these were, it was just shocking, you know, that the LDPR and the nationalists and Zhirinovsky were so popular. And, oh my goodness, what, I mean, the Kremlin back party did a little better in 95 than it did in 93. And I went over to do focus groups and to talk to people on a Fulbright grant. And I learned so much from just focus groups and being there and talking to Russians about things that I as an American found puzzling, like why are you worried about freedom of the media and understanding how the chaos was affecting people's lives. And, you know, frankly, I think it's time for American political scientists and journalists to do that in the United States. We've just got to get out there and try to come to grips with what the two sides can agree on and how we can move forward, because we've just got to get out of this mess we're in. Thank you, Maria, and probably also for a concluding remark of some sort, what do you think is hopeful for Russia's media, especially in relation to Russia's politics, Russia's political future? Well, one thing we should notice is that I think the U.S. experience also teaches us that monopoly or oligopoly on viewpoint on one particular opinion is never great. The opposite of it, the too much pluralism and self-selection into bubbles is also not great. But one of the problems with the U.S. politics, I think, in recent years is that the ownership over the media got a little bit too concentrated. And as a result, perhaps it's a little bit somewhat increases the discretion of the influence of one particular channel or several channels over the public opinions. I think that uh, one of the reasons to learn is that, and of course Russia's own experience demonstrated, if anything, that particular top point, that we need much more alternative viewpoints, much more different outlets and uh, places for people to be exposed to different viewpoints and positions. And I think that's also true with regards to the internet, which in recent years witnessed some concentration of growing influence of outlets like Facebook, Twitter, maybe Reddit, and having more variety of opinions I think will be more ultimately conducive for developing some kind of a centrist uh, position rather than promoting concentration of the media. Yeah, that's a great point. Thank you so much. Thank you, Maria Snigovaya. Thank you, Sarah Ost. Thanks for agreeing to talk to us. Thank you so much. Thanks a lot, Max. Thank you. The Russia File podcast is a product of the Kennan Institute at the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars in Washington, D.C., and is a companion of Kennan Institute's Russia File blog. The mission of the Kennan Institute and Russia File is to improve America's understanding of Russia and the broader region. For more of our analysis of Russia, Ukraine, and Eurasia, and to read our blog, please follow us on Twitter at Kennan Institute, on Facebook at Kennan.Institute, or visit our site, wilsoncenter.org slash Kennan.